Well, good morning, church. How y'all doing this morning? Awesome. So glad to hear it. So if you did not know, this past week, me and a bunch of our high schoolers were at a thing called CIY. And the theme of CIY this year was Jesus is for all forever. And we kind of went through each day what that kind of means for each of us. And one day we were talking about how Jesus is for us collectively as a church. And this morning, I think we can kind of show that to each other. So we can show that by standing up, finding someone around you and greeting them and letting them know that Jesus is for them today. This is what freedom feels like. This is what heaven sounds like. 
Michelle and Christian. Um, my name is Victoria Shedrick, and I am transitioning into the new middle school position here at Shelby Christian. And I want to welcome you here this morning. It was wonderful to see you. Um, as we transition into this time of communion, I invite you and to remember that this is a time to remember him. I invite you to remember that this is a time to get back to our roots and our relationship with him and the intimacy that that brings. I ask that you surrender everything that you bring to him today, whether it's family, financial struggles, school, anything that is going on in your life. I pray that you remember him and that you let him take everything that you have struggling and you remember his goodness and his sacrificial love. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for your sacrificial love that you show us every day. I pray that you continue to be with us. I pray that you continue to show us your intimate love as we take this time to remember you and to remember your sacrifice every week. Lord, let this body and this blood be a remembrance of your goodness and let us live in that this week. Amen. as we continue to worship together taught y'all a song last week I think coming out of communion uh, really it just really goes together with what we're about as a church that we remember Jesus but that his sacrifice is ultimately magnified and reflected by the lives we live by the way that we love him by the way we love others So as we sing this song, let these words speak to your heart.
Christ to be magnified in us. Such a powerful song, such a, such powerful uh, words that I hope we'll carry with us uh, into this week. Hey, you guys may remember, uh, some of you may remember actually the, the original uh, show, um, Kids Say the Darndest Things. I think Art Linkletter did it back like in the 60s. Then Bill Cosby brought it back in the late 90s. And now it's back on a little bit. Tiffany Haddish 
does the show. And it's based on, right, this pers- the perspective of the funny things that kids say. And they usually kind of focus, they'll get the little, the little ones, but usually when you get to like an eight, nine, ten year old, there's something about like this kid that's growing into a, a little bit older and kind of is recognizing the world around them and picking up on the irony of like the things we say and do. They can, they can be really funny. We have a, a almost nine year old in our house, uh, that, that sometimes will say funny things, but also will sometimes will like call us out. It's like he's at that point as a parent, as a kid and where that relationship is parents like, Hey dad, well you said this or you do this. And I'm like, Oh yeah, you're right. My bad kind of stuff. You know, I, I was looking at or listening to reading a, a few of these this week and I wanted to kind of share them with you this morning. Here are a few, a few of the just funny, honest things that the kids say. 10 year old Martin was asked one time, they asked him, what, what do people, what do most people do on a date? And here's what he said. On the first date, they just tell each other lies. And that usually gets them interested enough to go on a second date. And I thought, you know what, Martin? I think you've figured out something there. I think there's a lot of truth in that one. Here's another one. Seven-year-old Curtis was asked, when is it okay to kiss someone? He said, well, the law says you have to be 18. So I wouldn't mess with that. So, I don't know who Curtis is listening to, but he's convinced of of something there, right? Eight-year-old Derek was asked, how can a stranger tell if two people are married? And he replied, well, you might have to guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. (laughs) A lot of, a lot of yelling apparently going on in Derek's household. And then this is the last one. Eight-year-old Lori was asked, what do you think your mom and dad have in common? And she said, well, I know they both never want to have any more kids. <laughs> so apparently Lori is a handful at her house, right? And so kids say funny things. I, I, I read a quote this week that says, when kids are small, they step on our toes. As they get older, they step on our hearts. I bet some of you guys as parents could relate to that. The the heartache sometimes that comes with parenting or grandparenting or mentoring or leading or guiding, coaching, teaching, whatever. If you've ever had a young person in your life that you love, that you cared for, and you walked with them through those early stages of life, you can probably relate to that heartache. This morning, we're going to look at a part of David's life where his kids... Bring him an immense amount of heartache. Some of the choices that they make, the decisions that they make are deadly. They're lethal. They're heartbreaking. They destroy lives. They destroy his family for a time. And we're going to see this morning how David walks through that and what God maybe is showing, showed him and what he can show us this, uh, in, on the backside of, of this story. This summer, we've been looking at the life of David, and we've been talking about this heart, this passionate pursuit of a life that that has God right at the center of it. And the first first few weeks, it was all good stuff. It was like David's highlight reel, all the good things that that God did through David. It was like, wow, David, is he's going along great. Life's great. Everything's awesome. Like, he's walking with the Lord, and everything he did kind of touched. You know, everything he touched turned to gold, and everything was awesome. He He was cruising along. And then we get to kind of this middle part of his life where he starts to kind of get complacent. 
He takes his eye off the Lord. He, take, he starts, has this wandering eye over Bathsheba. We talked about a few weeks ago. Dave kind of wrapped that up last week with the Nathan prophet who comes in and then confronts David and says, hey, you've got this major issue. You've got to deal with this. And he does. And there's lament and there's heartache. And they work through that, right? And then you get to this story that we're going to read today. We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel. We're going to be in chapters 13 through 19. So there's a chunk of about seven chapters there that we're going to cover this morning. I'm just going to give you the highlights of what's going on here because we obviously don't have time to read the whole thing. But this deals with with some of the issues that David had with his children. Let me kind of give you, like I said, some of the highlights. Because David's uh, failure, his moral failure as a leader and as a king, as a father, really brought, brought about some tough consequences for him, but also for his kids. And then what you'll see this morning is that truth that sin has these consequences that we can't run from, we can't get away from. It's going to be reinforced in this story today with with David's kids. All right, so here we go. I'm going to give you, like I said, the highlights of, of this story. It's You can read the, the all the details. The uh, Some of them are horrific details. This is a adult um, talk. This is an adult sermon. These are adult... Uh, Situations that we're dealing with this morning, much like the situation with David and Bathsheba. And so here it is. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 13, we're introduced to uh, a man named Amnon. Amnon is um, David's son, one of David's oldest son. Amnon becomes infatuated with a young woman named Tamar. Now, the, where it gets weird and where it gets awkward, and this is like where it gets like, this is going to go off the rails really bad, or really quickly, is that Tamar is Amnon's half-sister. And Amnon is infatuated with Tamar. He thinks she's beautiful and he wants to be with her. And so he concocts this plan. He, he fakes being sick one day. He's in the palace in his room. He's, he's sick and he says, hey, you know what would make me feel better? If Tamar brought me some soup. And so he concocts this plan to lure Tamar into his bedroom. And in this encounter there, as Tamar's in there fixing him food, getting ready to serve him food, thinking he is sick and in bed at this point, he attacks her and he rapes her. Now, this is a horrible situation. You can imagine you know, what, what Tamar is going through and feeling. And so she's, she's been raped, and she's there in, in this room where half-brother, she, the, the, there's this whole section of, of chapter 13 where she's pleading for, Tamar, for Amnon not to do this. And he does it anyways. The Bible says after this happens, he gets so furious. He, he, as much as he loved her before, now he hates her because of that rejection. And like he's just realizing what he's done. And, and she's realizing what he's done. And so she leaves. She flees the palace in, in disgrace. And she goes to her, her brother's house. His name was Absalom. She goes to Absalom's house and she tells him what's happened. And she, the Bible basically says that after she leaves the palace, she leaves Abnon's room, goes there. She is just, that's where she will ride out the rest of her life because she is like just so heartbroken over what's happened to her. She goes, she talks to her brother, tells him what's happened. And you can imagine Absalom, her, her full brother, what, what his reaction would be to this. And so he begins to just stew in anger about what Amnon has done to his sister. You can, you can imagine that scenario, that situation, right? And so Absalom is thinking, well, 
King David, when he hears about this horrible situation and what's happened with Tamar, he'll do something about it. Well, that's where the problem comes in. Because what you'll see today on three or four different occasions is that David, when he's presented with something that he needs to, to act upon, when he needs to step in and do something about as a father, he, he does nothing. And so he does absolutely nothing. And so Absalom is stewing, Tamar is broken, Amnon is like, well, I better get out of town because I, I've, this is, this is going to get bad. And so he flees the city. Amnon is gone, Absalom is there, and two years pass. Two years pass. Um, Absalom decides that he's got to figure out how to take care of this situation because David isn't. And so there's this party that's going to happen at Amnon's place out in the country. And so uh, Absalom says, hey, let's, let's send all of the son, uh, King David's sons out there for this party. And so Amnon says, yeah, you guys come on out. Absalom comes. Absalom's friends come. All the other uh, king's sons come. And they concoct this murderous plot to get rid of Amnon. And so they're there. They're drinking. They're partying. They get Amnon drunk. And they end up killing him. They execute him. So Amnon's out of the picture. Absalom's thinking, I finally got my revenge for what he did to my sister. You can kind of see, like, this is like Jerry Springer show, like, really gone off the rails, right? This is crazy. And so this is what's happening with David's children. Absalom, because now he's murdered someone else, decides that he can't be around. And so he goes, and he leaves Jerusalem. He hangs out out in the countryside, the Bible says, for two years. And, and he's just hanging out, and, and David hears about what's happened with his son Amnon. The Bible says he weeps about that. He's distraught, right? He, he's, he's angry with Absalom for what he's done. But again, he doesn't do anything about the situation. He, he, it's like he's got these feet of clay. He does nothing. And so what we then continue to kind of see here is that, that Absalom is there. He's in the wilderness. Two years pass. And David finally allows Absalom to come back into the city. Here's the next problem. Absalom's back in the city, but for two years he's there, and David the king refuses to meet with his son. He doesn't want to talk to him. He doesn't want to see him. He's not allowed in the palace. So Absalom is there in Jerusalem, but he, he doesn't see his father. And for two more years, this whole thing just kind of stews and festers, and it's just there, and it's bubbling up. And Absalom's there, and David's there, and nothing is done about the situation. Absalom reaches out to Joab, who was the commander of David's army. You remember that? from stories in the past. He reaches out to Joab because he knows Joab is close to the king. He says, hey, will you talk to my dad? Will you help? Like, get, I need to talk to him. I need to, I need to go just talk to him face to face. Joab rejects those, those conversations with Absalom. He doesn't even want to talk to Absalom. Absalom's furious now at Joab because he won't talk to him. He goes, here's kind of who he was, right? Absalom, beyond like this person that kills another guy. He goes and burns down Joab's barley field to get his attention. So now this field is aflame. They go, Joab walks down. He goes, what's going on with my field? Who did this? They said, Absalom set your field on fire. Okay, I guess I need to really talk to him. He's really ticked. So they finally talk. He gets him. He convinces him uh, through, through, Absalom, through Joab. David finally will see his son. And so they meet. Later on in, in that, the next few chapters there, they kiss, embrace. They are reunited. And you may think here, that, okay, that's... This story is going to take a turn for the better. David's back. He's going, to, he's going to deal with Absalom. They're going to maybe go on, and this next phase in life will be a little bit better. But here's the problem. 
Absalom is back in the king's grace. He's back in the palace. And he's got eyes now on the throne, on the kingdom. He wants what King David has. And so he begins to concoct this plot to take over the throne. He goes back down to the city gates, the Bible says, and he spends the next several years just talking to the people. He becomes this politician that people just really kind of enjoy and and love and are drawn to. The Bible says that he was handsome and and attractive and people love to listen to him talk. He had this long flowing hair. And so he's down at the city gates, the Bible says, and he's talking to people, people that were distraught with their situation in life. And he would walk up to them and he would say, hey, what's going on? How, How can we help? And he'd listen to them talk about what they were dealing with and, and the, the, the trials and tribulations of their life. And Absalom would look at them and go, you know what? If I was king, here's what I'd do about that situation. I'd make sure you got your justice in this situation. If I were king, here's what I would do. And the Bible says that over the next several years, that the hearts and the minds of the people of Jerusalem were turned from David. They become kind of discontent with David and they turn toward Absalom. And so now that now he's not only, he's not on the, the throne yet, but he's turning the heart and the will of the people in his favor. And so this goes on for, for a few years. It finally to the point that where Absalom has gained enough people and enough soldiers and enough confidence in them and enough support that he gathers this army. He takes this army of men. They go out to Hebron and they're out there and he's gathering. And, and we get to this point to where he realized that then the Bible says that Absalom's army is bigger and stronger now than King David's. David hears this. He hears about what's happening. He realizes that he's losing kind of like his men. He's losing just their attention and their will to follow him. And he's in a tough spot. And so Absalom is out in the country. He's planning his attack on his father to take over the throne, to take over Jerusalem. And so before he comes back into Jerusalem, David figures out, okay, he kind of sees the writing on the wall. And he says, you know what? I am, I'm toast. Like he's, 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 con, you know, he's con, kind of finagled his way through all of this. He's conspired against me. He's turned the people away from me. And so David and several of his men in, in his house and his army, they leave and they flee Jerusalem. Absalom comes swaggering back in and he assumes the throne. Absalom is there in the palace now. And he's, he, he kind of proclaims himself the king. He's not really the king, but he proclaims himself as the king. And then there's another just horrible situation that takes place. David left ten women, ten concubines in the palace to take care of the palace when he fled. For whatever reason, he left these women behind. And so they're there in the palace. Absalom and his people come into the palace and see that these women are there. <clears throat> Absalom takes these women. He puts a tent up. On the top of the palace, the flat part of the palace. You may remember, I'm assuming that this is a similar area where David, the night he saw Bathsheba taking a bath, right? It's probably that same kind of area. And Absalom goes up there, he takes this tent, he puts this tent up, and, and he takes these ten women out in the middle of the day in front of everybody in Jerusalem, and he rapes all ten of them. And this brutal, horrific, incredibly just like awful scene in the Bible. That's what Absalom does. That's who Absalom was as a man. I want you to listen to this quote from Mark Rutland about this situation. He said this in his book, David the Great. He said, unforgiveness does not hurt the people that you refuse to give. Unforgiveness in your life poisons only you. Absalom's hatred took root 
after Amnon's rape of Tamar. After David failed to punish Amnon, Absalom's hatred turned to psychotic poison until Absalom became what he hated, a rapist. If you refuse to let go of your wounds, they will eventually devastate marriages, destroy homes, ruin ministries, and bring relationships to destruction. He said, instead, receive the healing power of God and walk in his forgiveness. You see, even in these actions, Absalom... He's not totally dethroned David yet. He's there. He's in the kingdom. He thinks that this is like his revenge on all the things that has happened to him. And so now you can imagine there's this thing that's going on between David and his son. And David's not only fearful of his life, of his kingdom, his relationship with his his son obviously has, has gone way wayward. He's out in the country now. He's out in the caves and the hills. For a second time, David's out there, and he has to regroup. And that's exactly what he does. The Bible says he gathers the men that were there left with him, the loyal soldiers, the Israelite men that were there with David. And he gathers them together, and he develops his plan. And so what he, what he does is he says, you know what? Here's how I've been successful in the past. I've taken, you know, he goes back to thinking about Goliath when he defeated Goliath as a young boy. He lured the giant out into the open. And then he was allowed to do what God was allowed to do, what he needed to do through David. And so David says, you know what, we're going to do that again. Absalom's there. He's in the city. He thinks he's got this big, powerful army. And he does. And so we're going to lure him back out here into the wilderness where we're comfortable. David's men, they were comfortable with guerrilla warfare. They were comfortable with the wilderness and the caves and the desert and all that. And so that's where their terrain, they were most comfortable. And so David says, we're going to get him and we're going to get those people. We're going to get them out here and we're going to have the control over the situation. That's exactly what happens. Absalom swaggers out with this large army of people. David and his small army defeat Absalom and his army that day. And so there's this turning back, and David's heading back to the kingdom. Before he, he says this to his military leaders, he says, before they go out, you, you can even see like in this how Absalom and David's relationship is, is almost over. It's at the end of it, but David still has this little bit of grace and mercy left. He says, and when he's, when he's talking to his military leaders, he says in, in 2 Samuel chapter 18, he says, for my sake, will you uh, deal gently with this young Absalom? David rides out, he meets this rebellious king and this army, and they win a great victory that day, Second Samuel says, in the forest of Ephraim. And then here's what it says, listen to this, in Second Samuel verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 9. I just kind of ran through those first several chapters there. This is what happens at the end of this battle. During the battle, Absalom happened to come upon one of David, some of David's men. He tried to escape on his mule. But as he rode beneath the thick branches of a great tree, his hair got caught in the tree. This, his mule kept going, and it left him there dangling in the air. Now, you kind of get this picture, right? Here's this guy. They're in the middle of this battle. This war's going on in this forest. And now you got Absalom there. Like he, he's, he's dangling from this tree. And this is a very precarious situation to be in when you're in the middle of a war, right? Joab hears about Absalom in, in his situation. And here's what happens next in, in verses 14 and 15. Then he, Joab, he took three daggers and he plunged them into Absalom's heart as he dangled there, still alive in this great tree. Ten of Joab's young arm bearers then surrounded Absalom, and they killed him. After Absalom's death, David returned to Jerusalem and reestablished his throne in Israel. But David would never get over the grief he felt for his son. Here's part of the point. David's life is a cautionary tale 
with an everlasting truth. His life is this cautionary tale with this everlasting truth that our sins, they always have consequences. David had not modeled for his children anything worthy of repeating as someone who was following the Lord. And so he is reaping the the consequences of his actions. Once again, he's overwhelmed because of the mess that his life has become. But here's what we need to see. It's his sin that caused his mess, right? And so sometimes for us, there are situations that we may find ourselves that maybe not as horrible as the situation that David and his sons found him in in this story. But there are situations sometimes that we find ourselves in that we see other people in and we wonder, how in the world did it get that bad? How did it get to that point? How in the world could life just kind of cave in and collapse on people like that? Every time, every time you can trace that back to the sin of someone's heart, right? The sin that we, we decide to indulge in, that then we realize later on, sometimes we stop and go, oh no, yeah, my sins, they do have consequences. And what I am experiencing now are the consequences of my sins. That's exactly where David was in this situation. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to look at the f- just four mistakes that David made. There are a lot, a lot of mistakes he made, but I want us to kind of point out four mistakes that he made and see what we can learn from them as we're kind of dealing with our kids and our grandkids and those that we care about that we're trying to, to influence and raise and mentor and see what, what we can do to, to maybe learn from this. One of the things that I always try to do in life is learn from other people's mistakes instead of making them myself, right? It's always wiser to look at other situations you go, you know what? That was a poor decision. I, I'm going to try to learn from that and not do that myself. That usually works out better for us. And so maybe we can look at David's life and do the same thing this morning. Here's the first the, the mistake that he makes. David set a poor example, obviously, for his kids, didn't he? When Absalom rebelled against David, one of the men who joined the rebellion was named Ahithophel. And here's another one of these. I wish these names were a lot simpler back then, but they're not. So Ahithophel was one of the guys who joined the rebellion, who joined Absalom when he's taking over the throne. He was one of David's closest advisors later on in his years as king. Here's what's interesting about Ahithophel. Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And so... You can start to think about this man who saw what his granddaughter went through with the king and the heartache and the destruction and the death and the evil and the sin that was brought about because of David's indulgence with Bathsheba, right? And here you have a grandfather back, sitting back, heartbroken because of what his granddaughter has gone through. And so you could imagine that there are some things that Ahithophel carried with him through life. And and when he got the chance later on to go a different way, to turn on David, that's exactly what he did. Our example as parents can be incredibly powerful or it can be incredibly destructive. And so here's the question. Are we modeling the kind of behavior that we expect of our kids. Steve Farr said this. He said, you cannot impart that which you do not possess. You cannot expect something out of your kids that does not exist in your own heart. 
Character isn't something you mandate. It's something you model. Character isn't something that you mandate. It's something that you model. David wasn't modeling good character with his kids, was he? He he wasn't setting them up to succeed in life. In fact, the things, the way he was living his life at this time was setting them up for failure, was setting them up for, for destruction. And that's exactly what we see in these stories in the middle of 2 Samuel. David sets a, a poor example. It's hard to expect our kids to respect others when we are not respectful. If we scream at the coach and say nasty things about the teacher, mock the other parent, our kids are gonna they're gonna pick up on that behavior. And we teach our kids to be respectful and we need to be respectable, worthy of respect. And so the gift in this first one is that we give our children consistency in the way that we model our lives for them. David didn't have the moral high, high ground to teach his children about their relationships. He was a poor example, and his sins had some devastating consequences. The second one is that David failed to confront sin. We can assume King David was a, a very busy man. Maybe he felt like he didn't have a lot of time as, a, as a, to a parent to parent his children when they were young. And maybe he just felt like as the king there were more important things for him to do. And being a, a father wasn't necessarily one of them. And that's where he made a huge mistake. David's passive attitude towards his children, especially when they got older, led to this incredible heartache that we see in this story this morning. His most pivotal failure was not dealing with Amnon immediately following the rape of Tamar. His son had just committed a vicious act against a woman. And 2 Samuel 13 tells us that David was furious, but he didn't do anything about it. He had this, this attitude of, oh, it'll just, it'll get better. It'll be okay. I'm going to ignore it and just kind of hope this whole thing goes away. Can you all just kind of get back to getting along? And let's just kind of forget that this ever happened. Let's not talk about this anymore. Let's kind of just forget it. He did nothing about it. You ever, you ever seen that happen with parents? You know, it's like, let's, can we just like, let's not deal with that. Let's not talk about it. If I were to be honest with you this morning, it's kind of one of the things, one of my, one of my defaults as a dad sometimes. Like, can we just get over this and get past this and move on? And, and I was convicted this week. You know, sometimes we need to be like, stop. No, we can't just forget it and move on. We need to deal with it. We need to talk about it. We need to act in the middle of this. And so David's <clears throat> inaction and his passivity was was vital here. It was, it was crucial. It was devastating. David never confronted his sons and they would all end up paying a high price for that passivity. The gift that we give our kids in this one is firm discipline. Discipline isn't just punishment for wrongdoing. Discipline sets boundaries and clear expectation, expectations. It means creating an environment where kids can be secure. You know, one of the things that I've, I've learned um, over the years, just observing kids and children and, and middle school kids and high school kids is that, you know, they will kind of push back with rules and, and things that we try to implement as parents, as leaders. But, but if, if they're really honest, when they sit and think about it, they will at some point realize that there's security in those guardrails. There is security in that discipline. There is security within the boundaries of like, hey, everything's going to be all right because there's this playing field and there are rules and there are laws and there are things that we're going to abide by. And like I have security in the middle of that. And our kids, they need that in our homes. They need to know that they're safe and secure and that we have rules and we have these guardrails that we're going to live our lives by. 
They need to know what we expect, and they need to know that there are consequences for stepping outside of those things. And they learn the benefit of making wise choices in the middle of that. The third thing that that David did that I think we can learn from is David neglected his son. We read that David longed to go to Absalom after he killed his brother, but he didn't. Once again, he, he doesn't do anything. There's this odd thing that happens in the story. You read it several times. He does it with, with Amnon. He does it with Absalom. He doesn't, he's like, oh, he longs for his sons. He's heartbroken over the situation. He longs to be with Absalom and to rectify this whole, whole situation. But again, he doesn't do anything in the middle of it. Look at it's 2 Samuel 14, verse 24. It says, When Absalom returned to Jerusalem, David gave this order. He said, Absalom may go to his own house. He can come back into the city, but he must never come into my presence. And so Absalom did not see the king. For two years, he lived in Jerusalem without seeing his father. David knew where he was. David knew exactly how to get a hold of him. But he was so hard-headed, he was so stubborn, he refused to go see him. And I have to tell you, this is a very perplexing decision that David makes. Why in the world, David, would you spend two years not talking to your son, allowing these things to just kind of grow and this to get worse and worse over time? But that's exactly what he does. So the gift we give our children is unconditional love. Children need to know that they're loved and rebellious children even know, need to know that they're loved. We don't condone behavior or enable sin, but we should... We shouldn't shield them from the consequences, but we should show them that God's love is unconditional. It's without condition. How might this story, I I thought about this a lot this week, how might this story have turned out different if David had built a bridge with Absalom and loved him in spite of this horrible situation, his sin? The fourth thing, David waited too long. When David is told that Absalom has been killed in the battle, here's what David does. It says in in 2 Samuel 18.33, The king was overcome with emotion. He went up to the room over over the gateways, and he burst out into tears as he went. And he cried, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. If I had only died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. You have this king, this father, who is now heartbroken, over the death of another son. Do you suppose David ever told Absalom how much he loved him? I wonder if there was any idea that his father was willing to lay his life down for his son. Our children need to know that we love them, that we believe in them, that we want what's best for them. They also need to hear that from us. David, he waited too long to say it. He waited too long to show it. And so there are a lot of choices that David makes. There's a lot of things that he gets wrong in this story. And it's a horrible story. And hopefully for us as parents and grandparents, like I've said, there are some things that we can learn from this, be reminded this morning of. David, he blew it with Absalom. That's crystal clear. But that doesn't mean that he was a complete failure as a father. He had another son named Solomon. And when David was about to pass his kingship onto his son Solomon, here's what he said. In 1 Kings chapter 2, uh, verses 2 and 3. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, sorry. He says, I'm going where everyone on earth must go someday. David's saying, I'm about to die. My life is almost over, Solomon. And then here's what he says to Solomon. You can see years and years of, of wisdom and just kind of life 
flowing through these next few words. He says, take courage and be a man. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all of his ways. It's almost like David's looking at Solomon in the end and he's going, Solomon, my son, will you learn from my mistakes? Will you do what what I haven't always done? Will you follow the Lord in all of his ways? Will you keep the decrees and the commands, the regulations and the laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in all that you do and wherever you go? And we know later on in Scripture that Solomon took those words to heart. He asked God for wisdom and he wrote Proverbs and he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Later on in in life, Solomon would return to his roots and he would surrender to the Lord. He wasn't perfect, David, but he passed his faith, his love for the Lord, on to his child, to his son Solomon. David understood this truth, and it's the bottom line this morning. A bend in the road is not the end of the road unless you fail to make the turn. A bend in the road is not the end of the road unless you fail to make the turn. Right? There are a lot of twists and turns and curves in life, aren't there? You guys have have probably, as you've journeyed through life, gone around a lot of curves and a lot of twists and a lot of turns and a lot of dangerous paths down through life. And if we'll make that turn and we'll keep going, right, it's not the end of the road. David knew that if he just kept going, that if he kept pursuing God with this heart that was passionate for the Lord, that in the end, it wasn't going to be perfect. But God would would use that life. And, And I think about a story that Jesus told in the New Testament. It was a story of a of a of a boy and his father. Jesus just makes this story of this, this parable. And he says there was this son who was wayward. He decided that he was going to go live life. He was tired of being under the, under the thumb of his father. And so he gets his inheritance and he goes into the city and he lives this incredibly just self, selfish life. And he gets to kind of the end of the money and the end of the rope. And he realizes he made this huge mistake. And he realizes he needs to go home to the father. And he's prepared to to grovel. He's prepared to crawl. He's prepared to beg to get back to the Father. If I could just get back to Dad, he'll take care of all this. And Jesus is telling the story, and he says, As the Son comes down the road, the Father, standing on the porch, looks out, and he sees his Son walking down the road, probably shuffling his feet, with his head down, with tears rolling down his cheek, just hoping. God, I hope that my father will just accept me back. Maybe I can just be one of his servants. He's distraught. He's broken because of his sin, because of what he's done to the family, what he's done to his father. Jesus says that that man looks up and he sees his son walking and he jumps off the porch and he takes off running. And he runs toward his son, right? And he runs and he runs and he runs. And his son is there. And I'm sure at some point he runs and meets him the other way. And they hug and they hold each other and they cry. 
and there's this incredibly beautiful reunion of a wayward son and a father who's been waiting for so long. I wonder for us this morning, maybe there have been bends in the road. Maybe, maybe there have been some, some turns. Maybe there have been some, some difficult times. But it's not the end of the road. Unless you fail to make the turn. That young man that Jesus told that story about, he turned and he went back to the Father. Because he knew that was where he could find forgiveness and love and grace and peace. And so for us this morning, I wonder, I wonder for for us in this room, is it time to maybe make that turn and to head for home? Maybe as you sit here this morning, you feel this distance between you and your heavenly father, not because of anything he's done, but because of, of your sin and your guilt and your shame. And maybe when you come in here, it's hard for you to even walk in these doors. And you sit here and you keep, you have your head down and you're just hopeful that no one else knows what's going on in your heart and your mind. I want you to know this morning that there's a father that loves you desperately and that he's waiting right there at the door for his sons and his daughters to come home. Would you come home? Would you guys pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for today. God, I thank you for the opportunity this morning to to gather as a church family to read this uh, passage of Scripture, this story that it's not easy to read. It's not easy to digest. It's not easy to, to even understand what in the world is going on with these people and why would they choose to make such horrible decisions. And God, we're reminded that it's because in the middle of sin... Satan has us exactly where he wants us. Focused on other things and other people and, and hatred and selfish acts, lustful, demonic things that take us away from your love, that, 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 that push us away. And God, we see that in this story. We see that in, in, in the, the people in, in David's life, his, his children. We see that happening. God, we, we see that in the story that Jesus told about the prodigal son that, that realized what had happened and, and turned, came home to the Father. God, thank you for reminding us this morning that it doesn't matter how bad it gets. There are going to be bends and turns in the road, and it's not the end unless we fail to make the turn and to return to you, to repent, to ask for forgiveness, to come to lay it all out for you. And then, God, we're reminded, because you remind us through your Holy Spirit that you've taken care of all of this. You take the guilt away, you take the shame away, you take the sin away through your Son, Jesus. If we'll just confess it, if we'll realize it and confess it and turn from it and walk in your ways, you will do something incredible in our lives. And so, God, my prayer this morning is that for the folks in this room, for all of us here that are gathered here, that we would understand that. That you would point out that you would use your Holy Spirit to point out the areas in our lives 
that we need to ask for forgiveness for. That you would maybe use someone else, a trusted brother or sister, to point out to us the areas where we need to repent of sin. That we would turn from those things and turn back to you, the Father. And God, you promise us that you, you will lovingly and graciously, you will, you will be there. You'll love us. You'll wrap your arms around us. You'll forgive us because you are a father who loves to see your children come home. Thank you for Jesus. It's his name I pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with me? We're going to sing this song. If you have a decision to make, we'd love to pray with you this morning, talk to you about that for the rest of us. My prayer is that you would just think about where is it in your life? What do you need to turn from? What do you need to walk away from? Is it a bend in the road or is it the end of the road? It's a bend in the road if you'll make the turn. Let's sing.
for uh, for being here with us this morning. If you're new, uh, just kind of checking things out, maybe for the first time, we have an I'm New Wall out in the lobby. We'd love to check with you, uh, check in with you, and kind of just maybe answer any questions you have about the church. A couple of announcements: uh, we're still um, planning for a, a date night, a, a cookout for our. Um, couples. There's a sign-up sheet in the back for that if you guys are interested in that. It's coming up this uh, coming weekend, the 24th. And also, just a reminder that we're reading through uh, the New Testament. We're halfway, th- about halfway through uh, July. We're in the middle of July, so it's like 1 Corinthians, middle of 1 Corinthians. So, hope you guys are reading that with us as we journey through the New Testament this summer as a church. Hey, thanks for being here. Have an incredible week. Let's go be the church. Let's love God. Let's love people. Let's go change the world. Love you guys. Have a great week.